This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Marina Sirtis, Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Truck FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I am your host, Richard Marquez, and joined with me today is the amazing Amy Nelson and the awesomest. Oh, Justin Ozer. <laughs> I was trying to go with an ING thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how are you guys doing today? Very, very good. Nice to have some time off as we are recording this. It's still my winter break and enjoying the lovely time off from my lovely students who I miss. Wink, wink. <laughs> how are you, Justin? Doing great, yeah. So as we record this, it's still 2018, <laughs> but this one is will be the second one to come out in 2019. But uh, yeah, I have a little winter break as well, so enjoying that, and it's nice to wrap things up for the year and uh, look forward to next year. Absolutely, yeah. I absolutely had a great time on this season. I mean, I went to the masseuse yesterday, and she was like, ooh, you're nice and squishy. I guess you didn't have any stress this week. I'm like, nope. Nice. <laughs> So I am nice and squishy, thanks to her. <laughs> but talking about my masseuse is not why we're here. So before we start the episode, uh, we have Babel, uh, Babel Conference feedback. And this one would be for Earl Grey 258. And that would be the Captain Jellico, where we had uh, Ken Tripp as our lovely guest talking about Captain Jellico. And um, Justin. Would you like to start us off? Yeah, so Greg Malumbi says, Excellent discussion as always. I never really thought of the Deep Space Nine connection before, but there is a little similarity to how Jellicoe commands and the style of DS9 the series as it went on. I also agree that the crew did look bad. Jellicoe did what he needed to do to get the mission done. It might have been ideal if he had told Riker some of the plan, but they did need to amp up the drama. So thanks, Greg, for those comments um glad you enjoyed the ds9 connection and uh and our discussion um i'm actually curious amy since you weren't on the episode like what do you think of jellico in general well um i agree well when we get there bill sweet made a comment but um yeah <laughs> so i'll add my comments there um but yeah i think jellico it's I think he could have revealed more of his plan to the crew and show that he trusted them as much as he expected them to trust him. 
you know, trust is a two way street. So I, I can see your point there, Greg. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> I, I concur. I concur. So Matthew Bell says, good discussion, especially about Riker not actually learning anything from the experience. I suppose this is because of his status as a main character who has to come out on top. And doesn't he look oh so smug about it? <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he does in that scene where Jellico has to come to him and basically beg him to pilot, doesn't he? He yeah. does. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah, and we were talking about that in, in the episode that that Riker doesn't necessarily have to learn anything because he kind of wins in the end and saves everything. But but still, it's a great episode. <laughs> so Bill Sway said, it's interesting how the years have been kind to Jellicoe in terms of fan interpretation. Yes, I completely I, agree yeah. on this one. Because mm-hmm. first time watching it through, it was like, he's such a jerk, da, da, da. But then, you know, <laughs> the older I've gotten with more experiences and dealing with different types of leaders, um, you definitely can see how things have turned in favor of Captain Jellicoe. Yeah, that's that's definitely what happened for me and for Richard, although Ken had to kind of beat him into shape on it a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, a few times, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it... it it, okay. it is interesting how you'll see something the first time it'll hit you a certain way, but then over time you'll just kind of reevaluate and be like, huh, I guess that works, <laughs> you know, and you don't feel like he's as much of a jerk. At least, yeah, we don't. So, yeah, and it was a great discussion. It was a great discussion. I had a lot of fun with it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, today what we're going to be discussing is the next episode of Lost Episodes. And Justin, would you care to shine on this uh, or shed some light on this new story? New story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, new, quote unquote. <laughs> it's over 30 years old. Yeah. But but yeah, so this is part five of our lost episodes. And uh, listeners, if you haven't heard one of these before, basically we take a look at a script that was developed during the course of the next generation, either the seasons or the movies, but it never got filmed for one reason or another. And so think of these as kind of lost episodes that we can rediscover and and think about what could have been. So the one that we're doing today um, is actually, I think for those who are familiar with a lot of these lost episodes, maybe the most well-known of of those. Um, And it's a script that was called Blood and Fire, and it was written by David Gerald. Uh, Now, David Gerald is probably most famous for writing the original series episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, which is one of my all-time favorites and is a favorite for lots and lots of fans. But uh, he also, on the original series, co-wrote iMud and the Cloudminders, uh, and he also worked on the animated series, More More Tribbles, More Troubles, which was a follow-up to The Trouble with Tribbles, and Bem. Um, And the reason why we're talking about him here is that he was a consultant and a story editor on season one of The Next Generation, and he wrote a lot of the writer's Bible that they used as a reference for how the characters would be and and those kinds of things. So he had a lot of involvement in early Next Generation, and this would have been a season one episode. I know we've seen a lot of those, but this would be another one that would be season one. So, and this is another one that I'm getting from the book called Lost Voyages of Trek and the Next Generation, which has some original series and Next Generation lost episodes. 
So you guys ready to get into this one and see what it's all about? Yeah, I'm very excited. I mean, David Gerald is definitely a big name in Star Trek. So, and I really enjoyed all those episodes. I mean, the Cloud Minders, I did a a ready room with Chris Jones. And so really, I was got on that to, one too. Yeah, wasn't I? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Both of us were there. And so I really got to, uh, really analyze that and just, it's a great story, mm-hmm. but yeah, trouble with tribbles and I'm a, all great. Yeah. So, and, and this one's interesting also because unlike the other ones, we actually have a lot of comments from David Gerald about the script. So after I go into it, I'll get your comments, but then We'll talk about what David Gerald had to say about it, so it'll be interesting to kind of see his interpretation and where he was coming from. The Enterprise approaches the USS Copernicus, a scientific research vessel which had sent out a distress signal and is now adrift with no further communication coming from its captain or crew. I feel like a lot of these start with a distress call, doesn't it? <laughs> Something's wrong. An away team consisting of Riker, Tasha, Jordy, Freeman, and Eakins is assembled. Now, these are new characters, Freeman and Eakins, that were created for this story. Mm-hmm. We'll see if we they Riker. make it out alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So a man named Hodel is with Worf at the transporter console before he joins the others at the platform, patting Eakins affectionately on the shoulder. Now, something interesting here, and they make a note in, in the book, is it Worf's at the transporter. And this was early enough that they didn't quite know what Worf would be doing. So maybe he would have been at the, like, at the transporter. So that's, that's why he's there. Picard suggests that Beverly, if she wants to, can monitor the medical team's progress from the bridge, while Worf points out that scanners are picking up a repulsor field located at the center of the other ship's cargo bay. Picard quickly deduces that the crew of the Copernicus is obviously trying to isolate something. Well, that's interesting. He's like, well, if you want to monitor, it should be a command. Monitor our <laughs> signals. You would think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't. I don't really know like where that that hesitation comes yeah. from. Yeah. Although I, I think I found as I've uh, found out more about the history of early Next Generation, Wesley was actually the character that was created first. And then Beverly was just kind of there as his mother right? and maybe not as developed. I don't know if mm-hmm. it has anything to do with that, but yeah, that's interesting. So the away team materializes in a darkened corridor of the other starship. In midair, there is the flickering of pink and gold, but the image is described as being almost subliminal. Jordy points out that the ship monitor systems must be down as they hear absolutely nothing. Riker catches a glimpse of the flicker again, and Jordy describes them as being some kind of wavicle. A wavicle? Yeah, I, I looked this up, and it is an actual physics term. Whoa. It means something that has the properties of both a particle and a wave. And so it's actually part of, of the theory of quantum mechanics because light and some other things actually demonstrate the... Hold on a second. Both characteristics. Yeah, it demonstrates both, both characteristics. So a wavicle is something that's... Seems like a wave sometimes, seems like a particle other times, and light is one of those. So, um, I, But I hadn't seen that, that specific term before. <laughs> so The flickers move around Geordi and then vanish, filling him with a tickling sensation. Freeman, who has been utilizing his tricorder, cannot explain what they've just seen. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise bridge, Picard and Data, who have been watching everything via the view screen, get to work on the flickers. 
Back on the Copernicus, the away team finds their passage in the corridor blocked off by doors which have been permanently sealed. Considering this, Riker tells them that they'll be using manual access to the bridge. Data contacts them, explaining that he is picking up extremely weak readings of life throughout the ship, but he is unable to locate all of them. They move on to the bridge, and Geordi screams out as he takes in the sight of a mummified crewman who they deduce was responsible for sending out the distress signal. <laughs> mummified, yeah. <laughs> so it's already a little creepy. Mm-hmm. So Freeman approaches, takes tricorder readings, and makes the shock discovery that the body contains absolutely no blood. Ooh. Hodel <laughs> jokingly refers to the body as a victim of a space vampire. So I think this is interesting because there, I think there was actually the original series episode Obsession where there was what they called a vampire cloud, which would suck out all of your blood. Hmm. So there was something like that before, but... Uh, well, and let's not and forget the of, salt vampire. The salt vampire takes out the salt. the salt from your yeah. body as well from the man trap. Yeah. So kind of makes you think of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, Riker has Geordi download the Copernicus's log to their tricorders as well as the Enterprise while everyone else makes their way around the bridge, quickly discovering that all of the consoles have been destroyed by phaser fire. At that moment, Data announces that the previously detected life form is headed right for the bridge. Seconds later, the turbo lift doors open, admitting Aaron's, who is described as looking very haggard and sick. Those so doors that we were sealed, right? Uh, let's see. So before it was saying that, well, that was in the corridor. I think this is a turbo lift to the bridge. Oh, okay. So that's a little bit different, but yeah, I know you have to like think visually, like where are they? What's going on? Because they're kind of moving around doing different things. While everyone instinctively takes a step back, Freeman moves toward the man, tricorder outstretched. Aaron starts ranting that they're too late and that everyone is already dead. Removing a hypospray from the med kit, Freeman injects the man with a tranquilizer, but at that moment, Aaron screams out in pain, begging them to kill him quickly. The man collapses to the deck, a red stain spreading across his chest. Tasha starts to report to, to the Enterprise, when data interrupts, stating that the life forms are still moving towards them. So Ooh, it's sort of zombie. Starting to be like a horror like. movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. So then Aaron's manages to grab Jordy's phaser and unleashes a lethal blast at himself, disintegrating his body and leaving in the aftermath a cloud of pink and gold wavicles, similar to the ones we had seen earlier, which spread out quickly, move into the away team, and then vanish. Yeah. Ooh, they're infected. But already it's 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 kind of disturbing. This this person is just like vaporizes themselves. Yay. <laughs> All right. So Riker speaking to Picard states his opinion that the whole ship, including them, is probably infected with whatever killed the Copernicus crew. From the Enterprise Bridge, Beverly suggests that they utilize the transporter's biofilters, but the commander points out that the device will not filter out wavicles. So that's, I guess, why they're using wavicles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Won't filter that out because they're these wavicles instead of, I guess, bacteria or viruses or something. So, hmm. Nice try, Beverly. There, yeah. <laughs> there simply is no way for, for them to beam back. The captain turns to Troy, who says that the survivors of the Copernicus may have isolated themselves within the repulsor field detected in the cargo bay, and perhaps some answers will be found there. I talk about this repulsor field. I don't know if they really mean like a force field of some kind. 
Oh, that makes sense. Maybe. (laughs) I've never seen it referred to like that before. So Wrecker informs Picard that it's a possibility they're going to investigate. A moment later, Data and Beverly ask to speak to the captain alone, and as the trio move away from the main view screen, Data explains that the problem which seems to have affected the Copernicus is plasmacytes, also known as bloodworms. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Um, (laughs) So they've learned that the only other case of plasmacytes that they're aware of took place on a world within the Regulon system, which has been quarantined for the past century and a half. Now, I think that these bloodworms, they're getting this idea, I think, from a reference that was in an original series episode. I'll have to look it up to, to make sure, but I think it's something that was talked about before and one of the things that David Gerald was was bringing in here. Hmm. I thought I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, bloodworms. <laughs> so Picard doesn't want to discuss the situation any further. And when data points out that Starfleet regulations prohibit even attempted rescues of potential victims, Picard feels there must be a solution that they can reach. Beverly, hating to be the one to do so, drops the other shoe. There is no cure known for the disease because it has never left any survivors. Ooh. <laughs> so it sounds really bad. Of course, they're going to make it out somehow, but <laughs> have to find out how. So then Hodel and Eakins work on a computer console doing their best to reactivate it. Hodel locates the proper connection and connects the Enterprise to begin downloading information. The man is then shocked to find a red worm slithering across a cable. The worm is removed and placed in a sample case as Hodel reaches back into the panel and yelps in pain as something hurts him. Extracting his hand, he and Eakins are horrified to find several more of the blood worms. Eakins contacts Riker, and as he does so, a wave of the worms starts slithering down the panels and out into the open. Ooh, this is scary. <laughs> you know, yeah, you never like sticking your hand in a dark hole or a console like yeah. that. Now and, you and know then why. And some worms come out. <laughs> Yeah, I know it's, uh, and this is just the beginning. (laughs) All right. So then Hodo, meanwhile, is finding it impossible to get rid of the worms on his hand as others start attaching themselves to different parts of his body. Eakins fires his phaser into a group of the worms on the floor and they transform into wavicles. So these worms seem to be the source of those wave particle things. He backs away in horror as Hodel is nearly covered in worms and ultimately decides to use his phaser to put the man out of his misery. I mean, it's getting to be like really a horror show at yes. this point. Right? I mean, this may be the most intense one that we've seen so far. So then a large cloud of wavicles results from the man's disintegration. So you can imagine that's a pretty intense scene they would have <laughs> had to execute. Conspiracy theory is not holds a candle to this. <laughs> A conspiracy, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's already freaky. What do you think so far, Richard? Oh, I'll I'll save for the end. Okay, all right, <laughs> all right. I'll keep going then. So at that moment, Riker and Tasha come up behind Eakins and, without asking any questions, decide that the best course of action would be to run to safety. Corridor doors are closed, with the hope being that the worms will not be able to make their way through them. Freeman, meanwhile, has joined them. Picard contacts them, explains that the enemy is definitely Regulan bloodworms, and this announcement extracts reactions which convey that the away team knows for sure what that means. So things go from bad to worse when Riker notices several of the worms managing to squeeze their way over the top of the closed doors. Mm. 
you know, I don't know. You would think that the doors would close a little more securely, but okay, they can make it through the top of the door. Picard tells tells them the Enterprise scanners have detected that an entire section of the Copernicus is infested with the worms, so the away team will be transported to the middle of the repulsor field within the cargo bay. When rematerialization is complete, they find themselves with 15 haggard survivors. Two crew members, Jarl and Blodgett, approach them while Freeman goes to work on the others, doing his best to ease their pain. There's a lot of named characters that we haven't seen before, it seems like. Yeah. It's like five or six at least so far. Yeah. Introductions are handled quickly, with Riker immediately asking Yarel if he, if he allowed the Copernicus to violate the Regulan quarantine. The man responds that this mission was an authorized one designed to discern if it would be possible to neutralize the threat of plasma site infestation. Blodgett interjects, the initial spores are drawn to oxygen-binding enzymes exactly like those which are found in human blood, and once there, they metamorphose, metamorphosize into the bloodworms. Jordi approaches, pointing out that the repulsor field, their only means of safety, is completely surrounded by the bloodworm threat, and that the energy for the field will only remain strong enough to repel them for a short time longer. It's like everything is closing in on this little exactly, space. Exactly, yep. Yeah. Hmm. Back on the Enterprise Bridge, Beverly theorizes a way in which a person could be saved by having all of the blood removed from their body, thus killing the bloodworms, and then replacing it with fresh blood. Needless to say, this would be an extremely dangerous gamble, and anyone partaking would have no more than 10 minutes for the transfusion to be complete, or that person would die. So, like, a complete transfusion of all of the blood in your body. Yeah. That's... I assume through the magic of transporters, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. That's pretty dangerous. It's a very interesting idea. Yeah. Their conversation is interrupted by Urel, who refers to a particular Starfleet regulation which states that critically important personnel must be rescued from a hostile situation before anyone else. Riker argues that the sick people near them are the ones who need to be helped first, but Picard, unfortunately, is forced to side with Urel. Picard turns to where Beverly was a moment ago, but now she's gone. Data states she's gone to the transporter room. Angry, Picard goes to the transporter room where he tries to dissuade Beverly from beaming over to the Copernicus, citing the dangerous situation and using the fact that she's an only parent as an excuse. Hmm. Interesting. She feels that such a remark is beneath him while adding that she and Wesley have discussed the danger of their mission many times in the past. But if she does not beam over to that other ship to help these people, then her oath as a physician is meaningless. She steps on the platform and is beamed over by Worf, who again is just there at the transporter console (laughs) yeah reminds me of that uh pulaski episode where she goes to Mm. those people who are aging yep that yep it it also reminds me of of the one where uh diana's fiance actually beams over to this plague infested ship to help them oh right he can just never return yeah wyatt wyatt yep wyatt that's right All right. So the crew member at the con position tells Picard that the families on board don't want the captain to proceed with the rescue mission for fear that the disease will spread throughout the Enterprise. Now, this is interesting because I think we haven't, we never really see in an episode like the families on board have discussed it and they're like, don't do this because it'll be put us in danger. So I guess they're kind of trying to, to deal with that. Yeah, to work with the new idea that families are on board. Mm hmm. Yeah. 
Picard replies that the Enterprise does not operate on a democratic basis. We're not abandoning our shipmates, he says simply, and we're not throwing away half the human race because the other half is scared. It's <laughs> mm. an interesting way to put it. So Worf contacts Beverly on the Copernicus, telling her that the auxiliary sick bay is now ready. Auxiliary sick bay. I don't think we ever hear about that on TNG, that they have like, like a backup sick bay. What would that look like? Yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean I, I have to think like since this is early TNG, it comes a bit off of the idea like on TOS you had auxiliary control, which was like another bridge that this is just like another sick bay that if you can't use the first one, I guess. I don't know. Well, and they do go on a lot of missions, you know, like helping people, so it would make sense to have a backup in case they come across a community that's you know, too large. That's true. Or, or if they have to quarantine the main sick bay because something's come there that's, mm, mm-hmm. that's contagious maybe. But yeah, that's an interesting idea we don't see anywhere else. Yarell and Blodgett are being prepared to beam over to the Enterprise with the doctor informing them that their bodies will be filled with artificial blood once they're over there. Before they depart, she asks where the bloodworms come from and is told they were created as a doomsday weapon to be used in a Regulan war. Oh, man. <laughs> so not naturally occurring, but that they were created. Ugh, mm-hmm. stupid humans. Created as a weapon. Yep. Yeah. Well, it says in a Regulan war, so I don't know if that means created by the Regulans. Well, stupid Regulans. <laughs> yeah. So at that moment, two men disappear in the transporter room. Jordi informs everyone that in about 40 minutes, the repulsor field will fail. Back on the Enterprise, Wesley walks onto the bridge where Picard tells him that he thought the boy might like to monitor his mother's progress with the rest of them. Again, might want to. Okay. Might want to, yeah. (laughs) I don't know. In this case, it's like, hey, you want to monitor the progress on the bridge as uh, blood worms close in and your mom's about to die? (laughs) It's interesting. (laughs) So then Wes wants to know if Picard is trying to prepare him for something terrible as the captain isn't usually so friendly. (laughs) Then he asks for a rationale as to why Starfleet sends whole families into space when there are so many dangers which abound. Interesting because we never really talk too much about that in TNG. So then Picard says, because our ancestors took their children with them when they crossed the oceans and ships and the continents in covered wagons. Because you are our children and we cannot leave you behind. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Not not a bad rationale. Sure. It's just just two lines of dialogue. They could have used that. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, we see the scene intercutting between Data on the Enterprise and Beverly on the smaller ship. They discuss the fact that they cannot destroy the bloodworms because they merely become wavicles which spread the infestation. As she states, suppose the plasmacytes were deliberately mutated to keep them from metabolizing the enzymes they need. Is it possible to neutralize that infection? Freeman then approaches, says they've got a problem, and Beverly in turn contacts Picard, explaining that there will not be enough artificial blood for them to provide complete transfusions. I don't know how they're creating this artificial blood. I suppose not through the replicator, because otherwise they could just have lots of it. Yeah. Although I don't think you hear reference to replicators in this in this script, so maybe it wasn't developed yet. I don't know. 
you would think that would actually be the first thing that they actually replicate. You know what I mean? Like if you're yeah. if you're able to uh, replicate food, why not medical supplies like of some sort or blood? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, because they don't have enough artificial blood, they will have to collect blood from donors aboard the Enterprise. The captain makes the announcement to the crew of his vessel, stating that the donation of blood will not hurt, and sure as hell will help. It actually says sure as hell. Wow. <laughs> Very demonstrative Picard. Yeah, I don't think that they knew exactly how Picard was going to act yeah, and I, behave. I, mean, I think for some of these, they were writing it before they'd seen anything that was filmed. Yeah, because <laughs> so. I could never imagine Picard saying, this is not a democracy and this yeah. is sure as hell going to help. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then as Data tells Picard that the, the Copernicus logs are incomplete, Yarel and Blodgett enter the bridge and are motioned toward the ready room. Once there, Picard demands to have some answers. Finally, Yarel admits that he was the one who authorized the Copernicus mission, emphasizing that there is an undeclared state of war existing between the Federation and the Ferengi Alliance. Hmm. And he is extremely fearful of what would happen should that alien race decide to unleash the threat of the bloodworms into Federation territory. So more about the Ferengi who are supposed to be the you know the big, big adversary guys, in the beginning. Yeah. yeah. And there's a, a war going on, apparently, between the Federation and the Ferengi Alliance. Hmm. That would be interesting to see. <laughs> so their mission was to find a way to contain plasma site infestation. Blodgett interjects that they had made a tremendous amount of progress in their studies, but Data is quick to add that there is no such evidence in the logs. Yarell takes the blame for that as well, explaining that they could not take the chance of their studies falling into Ferengi hands. Of course, what we know of the Ferengi, they'd probably just sell it. <laughs> I don't know if they'd use it against them in a war. But anyway, it's very interesting. So Picard, who has taken all of this in, points out that the Enterprise is not a military vessel despite the fact that one of the ship's assignments is to defend allies. I think that's just a, a little note from, from, from the authors of the book. So he's saying it's not a military vessel, and that he's concerned about the plasma site study, because if a weapon exists, invariably so does the temptation to use it. Yarel's response is that they cannot afford to be second best to anyone. Picard has security escort the two men to their quarters, ordering them to stay there. Now, it, I don't know if it really says that... It says so they so this person Yarel authorized it, but I don't know if they've been authorized to do this by I don't know an admiral or the Federation Council or anything. Yeah, or is Yarel the captain of the ship? Or yeah, like why would he have authorization? So. He's got to yeah. be someone important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I don't know if it really says the title. Yeah. Yeah, or the rank. Hmm. Okay, so once the captain and Data have moved back to the bridge, the android explains that Jordi and Tasha have been beamed aboard since their transfusion has been completed, and that they will soon be followed by Riker and Freeman. Ekins will be last. On the Copernicus, Freeman and Ekins are arguing over who should beam back over to the Enterprise first. Freeman decides to end the argument by injecting Ekins and Riker with the enzyme suppressant. Before he slips into unconsciousness, Ekins hands Freeman his phaser just in case. Riker and Ekins disappear in the transporter beam. No, so, no sooner are the two men gone than the sound of the repulsor field weakens considerably and then shuts down completely. Picard, who has been informed of this, has a transporter room on standby. Freeman contacts the bridge, telling them that he can hear the sound of the bloodworms approaching. 
Khan points out they've locked onto the man, but the medical tricorder reveals that he is still infected by the plasma sites. Realizing what's going on, Eakins calls out to his friend, but Freeman merely apologizes and starts to scream before there is the sound of a single phaser burst signifying the end of the man's life. Oh, Kind of gruesome and sad. Yeah. Yeah. So the communication channel is filled with static, which Picard disgustedly orders turned off. Yeah. Huh. So then, while Riker and Eakins are recovering in the auxiliary sickbay, Beverly goes to the bridge, pointing out that their problems aren't over yet. If the Copernicus is destroyed, there is a chance they would be unleashing an incredible num- number of wavicles into deep space, which would eventually locate a world with blood-filled beings, and the horror would start all over again. Yes, it would. <laughs> so are yeah. we to assume that those people behind the the thing that collapsed, those 15... The field? Yeah. yeah. Are, were they rescued or just the away team minus the one guy? I th- yeah, it doesn't really say, but I think the implication is that they were and that they were able to do this blood transfusion thing for everyone except, uh, I guess it's... Eakin? It's Freeman, Freeman, I think, that stays yeah. behind. Yeah. Because yeah. they were, you know, arguing before of who should beam over first and... They said that the Enterprise yeah. D crew should go first. That's true. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's clear. I assume that all the other ones, they were able to bring them over, but okay. I don't know. But there's more. It's not over. Okay. <laughs> so Data points out that possibility is unlikely, but it does indeed exist. Beverly believes that the plasmacytes are desperately trying to become something else, and their inability to metamorphosize is the thing that makes them so vicious. It is her opinion that she and Blodgett have come up with a way to alter, have to come up with a way to alter that which makes the plasmacytes hungry, which could then theoretically allow them to move on to the next step of their evolution. The main problem is that the only way to test this cure is to use a human volunteer. Naturally, another problem arises as Data calculates the Copernicus's heading. Furious, Picard summons Yarel to the bridge. Once there, the bombshell is dropped. The Copernicus is headed for the heart of Ferengi space. The man finally admits that he has studied the Ferengi menace for 15 years, and this would be the perfect way to obliterate that threat by infiltrating their territory with the bloodworms. That's terrible. Like, why would someone think that? I mean, if it's going to infect (laughs) this entire world of Ferengi, you've got to assume that there's going to be visitors or whatever, and then it's just going to spread everywhere. That doesn't even make sense. Doesn't doesn't sound like a good plan to me. No, it does not. But uh, I don't know. Maybe it was a plan that was put together on impulse and they didn't really have authorization from someone else. They've just gone rogue. But yeah, it sounds like a really bad idea. (laughs) So Yarel adds that the Enterprise is supposed to defend Federation space. But Picard believes that this is nothing more than blind hatred using defense as a cover. As the captain calls for security, Yarel moves a repulsor jar containing plasmacytes, which he will unleash unless they are brought into Ferengi space. Seeing no alternative, Picard has Worf, who is now back on the bridge, lay in a course. So, yeah, I guess Worf is there at the helm, too. He's <laughs> like we see him in season everywhere. one. Everywhere. He's bouncing around. He's the utility Klingon. Yeah. That's what he was first season. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> so he has uh, Worf laying a course, but Worf responds that the number two engine is still down for dilithium recalibration. We can't run it with a hot warp. That's the exact words. <laughs> I don't know what they meant with the hot warp and number two engine instead of talking about the nacelles. But anyway, 
Uh, so snapping at the Klingon, Picard turns to Urel and explains that there will be a short delay, but the man confidently points out that if nothing else, he is extremely patient. Feels like Picard's angry a lot in this one, doesn't it? <laughs> Eakins is suddenly before them, Phaser leveled at Urel, accusing the man of murdering all of the people on board the Copernicus, including Freeman. Picard steps in the way of the weapon, ordering Eakins to lower it, but the man refuses. Riker approaches, telling him to let Starfleet take care of Yorel in the way it should be done. A few tense moments pass, and, while weeping, Eakins hands his phaser to the commander. Then Yorel is screaming out, and as everyone turns to look, they see that Blodgett has taken the vial and is actually swallowing the plasmacytes. He asks to be beamed over to the Copernicus. Picard wants the man taken to sickbay, but he refuses, stating that he made a mistake by believing in Yorel, and now that this is his opportunity to make up for that mistake. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> let me just see if I got this right. So they had this vial that was supposed to stop the progression of the worms? No, I think they had the vial as like a sample of these worms that they didn't know that Yarrell had, and he's taking it out as a threat to try to induce them to go to Ferengi space. So he's That's still bent on destroying the Ferengi. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So he self-infected himself? Okay. Well, no, but then but then what happens is da, 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 da. so let me go back here. This other guy Blodgett actually takes the vial and swallows them. Because he's going to sacrifice himself uh so that so that this guy doesn't have something over them to take them into Ferengi space. That's what it seems like. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. <laughs> but I but I know it's a that's a little confusing. Okay, so this will also give them an opportunity to test the cure that Beverly has come up with. Ultimately he is beamed over to the other ship, and once there, all of the wavicles swarm over his body and into it. Ultimately he is transformed into a beautiful glowing cloud of color and light and flickering sparkles. It is an epiphany for him, a redemption. And that's a direct quote, I think, from the script. So it's someone else sacrificing himself. Blodgett then disappears into the light, and the result is a virtual light show with accompanying music as the Wavicles actually begin singing in their own way. It's very interesting. Uh -huh. So back on the bridge, Wesley, who is shocked at what he's seeing, refers to the sight before him as a legendary sparkle dancer. <laughs> That's what it says. Okay. The light explodes outward, rejoins in space, and sets off as a colony of dancing butterflies of light and energy. The Enterprise sets off for its next mission. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I think that the the implication is that they've reached their next stage of evolution and that they're not really harmful anymore. Harmful anymore but maybe they would have had to flesh that out a bit. Yeah, that's a bit interesting because, yeah. Why would they all of a sudden stop being harmful? Yeah, I, I know. So as I said before, very interesting story. And and I have here some comments that Javid Gerald had to make about it. But I want to get your impressions before we talk about uh, about what Gerald had to say about it. Amy? Yeah. So I get, so the title is Blood and Fire. I get the blood mm -hmm. part, right? Because they're blood sucking and mummifying and yeah, but I don't understand the fire part. Um, it was very interesting. It seems like a Halloween-esque type, you know, and I could just see 
the tenseness and probably some of that weird uh, season one music coming through as <laughs> yeah. these blood worms are approaching and approaching and climbing over the walls and, mm-hmm. you know, just building up that suspense. And especially when Jordy's like, well, we only have 40 minutes of this uh, force field left. And, you know, so I can see that the tension is really building and they put a lot of attention to that. And then, like the last two seconds, it's like, okay, and now we're off to our another adventure because they've metamorphosized into their true natural beings. I, I don't know. They probably needed to work a little bit more on that ending to, yeah, to sort of summarize it a little bit more. It seemed a little short-sighted there. Okay. And what are your general thoughts, Richard? <laughs> well, um, it, that wasn't the ending I was looking. I was expecting, I was expecting yeah, <laughs> at all. I, I was. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and it's you know typical of TNG to not have conflict, and so this you know bloodborne or this these blood worms are just you know gonna go off to the future and and their happy life because we wouldn't want you know to kill them or anything like that. That conflict, you know. I don't know if there's if there's no cure for it, then I would I if it was me I would blast it into space. <laughs> but that would be me. Um, but like it's just it's it's not the ending that I would have thought it would have been. Like you know, like uh, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 so. I mean, I mean, it's so weird um, about the uh, it, well. The ending is the weird is the most weirdest part. Um, I get the whole beginning and you know. And basically threatening to, you know, release the worms or whatever. Um, but like, I don't know. The end, that ending would definitely need to be worked on quite a bit. Um, I, I can understand, like maybe, uh, uh, if they would have like communication with the butterfly mist <laughs> or whatever cloud or whatever. Um, then yeah, but like. You know, like, oh, yeah, thank you for releasing us or something like that. I mean, but I guess it makes sense, you know, worms. Turning into butterflies, I right? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I guess. I mean, maybe maybe we're hosts for it and then. Yeah. Know. So did it say uh, how long that these blood worms were around? I think it said that it was like 150 years. So it makes me wonder, like, why could they last, you know, say 100 years? And well, I don't know reach... if, if if it was the same ones that had been around for that long. Yeah, but they just oh, you know, so maybe that's just this reproduction cycle. Like, why couldn't they point? have, yeah. you know, reached their butterfly potential, you know, without that serum that he took? I don't know. I don't know. But but like, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe it's something that just took a certain amount of time or something, because it, it makes me think actually of the episode, I think, in, in season three, where they pick up this guy and he eventually metamorphoses into like this being of light at the end of the episode. You know which one I'm talking about? I'll have to. It was in season three toward the end of it. And they called him John Doe for a while. 
Does this sound familiar? Yeah, he was like he was like having like look like hiccups or something like that. And yeah, he had bright, bright flashes, flashes would come out. Like but it I haven't seen that in a long yeah, time. Yeah, <laughs> but but it turned out in the end that uh, his whole species was reaching the next stage of evolution. Transfigurations. That's the episode. So, so it makes me think of that. It like it was just time. Maybe I don't know, <laughs> but it does come a bit out of out of nowhere. Yeah, I like. I also liked when <clears throat> they like when a couple of them were infested and they're like, just kill me now. And it sort of reminded me of like when the Borg took over and you saw, you know, some of the crewmen and they're like, captain, save me and help me. And, you know, by killing me, cause it was just so treacherous. Yeah, I could see that. So th- there's also some extensive comments from David Gerald that gives some background. You want to hear about that? Yes. Okay. So, and, and this comes from when Gerald was speaking at a, at a Star Trek convention. Um, and he was talking about the, his involvement with the next generation and the genesis of blood and fire. So, so here's what he had to say. So he said, the title of this talk is blood and fire, the script you won't see on Star Trek. I have to do this very delicately. It was said of me last week that I never wrote anything useful for Star Trek The Next Generation because I'm too old to write for Star Trek, which I thought was a rather remarkable thing to say, particularly coming from the man who said it. I thought you could insult me as a person all you want, and I'll probably agree with you because I know what it's like to live with me. But when you talk about my passion for writing or the quality of my writing, then you're talking about something serious. Star Trek The Next Generation was announced on October 10th. This is 1986 that he's talking about. And I was hired on October 20th, and I was immediately involved with a lot of development work. I wrote the first draft of the Bible for Gene, and I also did the final draft, and that was probably one of the most exciting and happiest experiences I had working on the show. Gene and I had long meetings about the characters, who would do what, and how it would work out. At that time, Gene was a writer's dream of a producer because he was available for input, listening to things people said, and incorporated lots of good suggestions. As we started going, Gene suggested that I start thinking of story ideas, which I did. I don't know how other writers work, but let me tell you how it happens with me. There are things I want to write about and things I want to address, and sometimes they all fall into the same story at the same time. One story I started thinking about dealt with the planet of very religious, puritanical people, and we have an observer living on that planet pretending to be one of them, and they're about to burn him at the stake. In order to rescue him, we accidentally beam up not only him, but several people who are about to light the fire. Of course, they end up in the transporter room, and all of these very religious people think they've been transported to heaven. The problem for the Enterprise was going to be, how do we tell these people the truth without violating the prime directive and shattering their religion and culture? And how do we return them without also interfering with their culture? The idea being that if we send them back, they can say they've been to heaven and have seen God. So we were working on that idea, And Dorothy Fontana suggested that the story be postponed, and that was because some of the other stuff we had in the works was a little soft, and she thought I should work on an action story I had also been playing with. What I wanted to do was deal with Regulin bloodworms because we had mentioned them in Trouble with Tribbles. So there we go, it does have a mention (laughs) in Trouble with Tribbles. People were always asking about them, but who knows what a Regulin bloodworm is? At that particular time, now I think this is 86, early 87, So at that particular time, there was a lot in the news about the AIDS panic and people not donating blood. Blood donorship was a major issue for me and always has been, and to hear that donorship was down because of fear of AIDS exposure, I wanted to do a story where at some point maybe everybody on the Enterprise must roll up their sleeves to donate blood to save the lives of some of their crew members. I thought that's an interesting notion for a story, 
so that was floating around in my head. Also, we had a discussion of whether or not we could use Mike Miner as our art director. Unfortunately, Mike was very sick with AIDS at the time and has since passed away, which is a great loss to us. He worked on the Star Trek features and had been involved in many different ways. I thought, here's an issue we really ought to address. I thought I would do a story that asked the question, what do you do with an infected population? All of this is floating around in my mind, but let me give you the rest of the source material. In November of 86, uh, we all, Gene and I, George Takei, Robin Curtis, and some others, were at a convention in Boston called Platinum Anniversary. It was a 20th anniversary celebration, and they had invited us all before they knew there was going to be a Star Trek The Next Generation. So we all went out there, and, and they were thrilled, because we were able to talk about what we planned to do on the new show, and they were very excited. Ooh, can you imagine that announcement, if, we, if you were there? <laughs> I know. Maybe a little bit like the Picard series announcement that we experienced this, <laughs> this year. But yeah. So that's so Yeah. And they were like just finding out about it. So I'm sorry this is really long, but it gives a lot of a lot of the background. But let me keep going. So David Gerald continues. There's apparently a gay science fiction club in Boston, and they said, Gene, we've always had on Star Trek in the past minorities clearly represented. Isn't it time we had a gay crew member on the Enterprise? He said, you're probably right. Sooner or later, we'll have to address this issue, and I'll have to give serious thought to it. I thought, okay, fine, because I was sitting in the back taking notes. Whatever Gene said was going to be policy. We came back to L.A., and I'm still making notes for the Bible and other things, and we're at a meeting with Eddie Milkus, Bob Justman, John D.F. Black, Gene, and myself, and Gene said, we should probably have a gay character on Star Trek. We seriously have to be willing to address the issue. So I said, okay, now I know that Gene seriously meant what he said in Boston, and I know that that's story material we could do. At that time, I felt very positive because by saying we could do that kind of story, Gene was also indicating a willingness to do a whole range of story material. As a writer, I was excited not just by that particular idea, but by the whole range of story ideas that were available. All this is floating around in my head. I wanted to do a story that somehow acknowledged the AIDS fear, something with blood donorship, and I started blocking out a story called Blood and Fire about regulant bloodworms. And where it started was with the idea that we find a ship that has been infected, and if you have a starship that's infected, what do you do without bringing the infection to your own ship? I thought we should make it a really horrendous thing that there's a standing Starfleet order that when you run into a ship that's infected with bloodworms, the order is to destroy that ship immediately because it's the merciful thing to do. And the last three ships that tried to save an infected population were also infected and died horribly. In the first few stories written, we saw they were a little soft and there wasn't much action. And to balance that, I wanted to do a show that had a lot of hard action and adventure in it. So the idea is that they could find another ship infected with bloodworms and they have a major problem. And to make it even more serious, first the away team beams over and then they find out the ship is infected with bloodworms. So now we have a problem. That's where I started, and then I worked out the life cycle of the bloodworms that they grow in your blood until they reach a certain point, and then, like malaria, they explode and start looking for new flesh. It was a very graphic kind of suggestion. I had a lot of fun with it. Dorothy liked it, and Herb Bright loved it, saying that it was the kind of story we needed to do. I knew there were going to be major questions that you, the audience, would be asking about the new show, so I wanted to address a couple of those concerns. And then when he was at the convention, he actually read a couple of scenes from the script. So he says, I was having some fun with the script based on some of the things you had been asking at the conventions. There's only one scene that deals with the relationship between Freeman and Aikens, and if you don't know better, they're just good friends. 
I wrote that in a way to acknowledge the contribution that gay people have made to the show and acknowledge that they were all taking a large part of the burden for the AIDS epidemic because this story was an AIDS allegory. And then we deal with blood donation. And then when he was at the convention, he says, I'm not going to tell you how it ends because I think the ending is real nice. It's a very grim story and had it been shot the way it was written or shot at all, there's a very satisfying ending that is truly a Star Trek ending. And part of it is that we don't truly understand who or what the bloodworms are. And there are things we don't understand that we have to learn. I won't spoil the ending by telling you what it is, but I'm very pleased with the script. When I finished it, I felt that it represented some of the best writing I'd ever done for any television show, and I thought it could be a better episode than The Trouble with Tribbles. Not as funny, but still good. I wanted to do something distinctly different from Trouble with Tribbles, and this is it. So I turned it in, went off on the first Star Trek cruise, and got a telegram from Gene that said, Everyone loved your script. Have a great cruise. When I got back, I found out that the script was not going to be shot. I was told that Gene's lawyer did not like the script and felt this was not a good episode, and so on his advice, it seems, the script was canceled. That's what I was told by someone who was in a position to know. So it was canceled for reasons that had nothing to do with its quality, and it was just put on a shelf. I was very hurt and very upset about it. So that's all the stuff that he had to say at that convention, which gives more a lot more background. So, uh, Amy, what do you think? Yeah, that background is my favorite part of this podcast. What an amazing context to this episode. I am blown away because I was thinking of blood donors. And um, when you were talking about how Beverly's like, well, we could, you know, do a complete blood transfusion. um, And just this year, my mother uh, had leukemia and Thankfully, she's she's fine now, but through her rounds of chemo and getting dehydrated and at this one point, the the very end of her treatment, like she was completely almost she had to have four uh, pints put in, which is basically an entire transfusion. And that made me think of that, of like what my mother went through and I was like, yeah. And that's, you know, I've always donated blood since, uh, 16. Cause in Utah you could blow, uh, donate blood with parent permission at 16 and then 17, you know, it was, you were considered okay. So I have been donating blood my entire life and, and believe it's a good thing to do. And if you can, then you should, I mean, it's, it doesn't hurt and you, in my mind, you get stronger from it and stuff like that. But uh, so very interesting to get that backstory. And especially with the gay characters, because that has been a bone of contention for many fans. And here it was being discussed, you know, at the beginning of TNG. So what great background. It would have been a big deal if they had done that. Although like the way that the script reads, I think David Gerald's right. Like, Unless you're really looking for it, you wouldn't know that that's what was going on. But I mean, the fact that they were discussing it, like, because it didn't even seem like it was being addressed anywhere, you know, and even in beyond and the big uproar about that, like, well, this has been Mm -hmm. discussed and, you know, talked about for a very long time now. Yeah. And the fact that Gene you know, was okay with I it. I think he was all for it, but his his lawyer, who, if you've seen Chaos on the Bridge, yes. interfered with a lot of stuff in the first couple seasons, apparently nixed it. Mm-hmm. And Leonard how Maislish, disappointing 
you know, yeah. uh, David Gerald was to, you know, go on his cruise thinking everything's okay. And then to come back and have it, have the show it's nixed. Not There's, yeah. Yeah. Richard, your thoughts. Well, unfortunately I can't, I can never donate blood. <laughs> oh. Um, but, um, it's, it's because I used to live in England, but even though mm-hmm. I never ate the, the common or the market meat, because when when I was there in England, it was um, it was the mad cow. Oh right, yeah. Scare, and we never ate anything on the market um, over there, so whatever. But they're really cautious <laughs> so about it. <laughs> I, so I can never uh, donate blood, so long as I tell them that I lived in England. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I do no. But I'm just saying, like, then um, that's how I found out. I actually found that mm-hmm. out in high school that mm. I, I couldn't do that. So I was like, all right. And apparently neither can my daughter either. Oh, so. interesting. I'm like, okay. Hmm. Yeah, I guess it's it's like one or two generations or really? is what they told me. And wow. I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, All they're right. very careful. Whatever. I was like, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with her and there's nothing wrong. Okay, whatever. <laughs> but like, um, and like I said, this was like back in the mm-hmm. 80s. So it's yeah. like, eh, okay, whatever. Um, I didn't want to get, you know, blood taken out of me anyway. <laughs> But like, yeah, it's uh, that sucks um, that it had to get pulled like that. And I think this would have been a great story to have, or to um, uh, to be told back then. But then again, I I, I don't know. Maybe maybe um, maybe the whole uh, like blowing up the uh, the butterflies would be a bad idea <laughs> for a story <laughs> uh, for the for the ending of this. I mean, I guess the way it's written, if that was, I mean, if that was the intention of the story, then yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for the butterflies and I mean, but I mean, obviously we, they would have to be reworked. Like, what are you sort of thing? And, you know, um, asking that, answering something, something along those questions or something like that. Um, but yeah, um, interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah uh, it's uh, yeah one of those things. What might have been? I mean, if that was a first season episode, that would have made a a, a big impact. It led to a lot of discussion. Um, so one of the things, though, because there's a bit more to the story, there's a couple more parts to the story. So actually, they tried to revive this in season five. So and that happened because um, Herb Wright, who worked on seasons one and five of of the Next Generation. Um, kind of was thinking of of bringing it it back. So so Herb Wright said, when I came back during the fifth season, I read the script again, Blood and Fire, uh, because they were hard up for stories and I brought it in. I mentioned it to Michael Piller and he said, what is it? Because Michael Piller wasn't working on the show on, in season one because he thought he had read everything when he came in. I said, you probably never saw this draft. If anything, you probably read Blood and Fire. And this one was called Blood and Ice. So Herb Wright actually rewrote it and called it blood and ice, <laughs> and and he said I printed in, printed it out, and brought it in. The staff loved it. Rick loved it. But Pillar said, "Nice script, but it's really a first season type of show." Aww. <laughs> and and so basically, blood and ice was a similar story, but it is actually literally about zombies in space. Huh. <laughs> so he changed it, I think, from these bloodworms to be zombies and removed any possible reference to like uh, gay crew members. So that could have happened in season five as, as Blood and Ice. But there's more <laughs> because 
it so happens more recently, David Gerald was involved in the fan um, production New Voyages, and they actually produced Blood and Fire in the TOS era. I haven't seen it because I didn't want to like ruin what I think about this, but I think I'm going to go and see it because they did it as like a feature length movie. <laughs> wow. So that that'll be interesting. I think that happened some some years ago and David Gerald wrote it and he directed it, I think. So it actually did happen in in one form, but it was I think in the TOS era instead of the TNG era. Huh. Yeah. So Interesting. Listeners, if you're interested, you can go and see it. It's freely available on YouTube, I think. So so it's had an interesting progression. Like it could have happened in season one. No. Could have happened in season five. No. But it did happen in a different way in a fan production. So. Huh. So it's on yeah. YouTube? Yeah. I think if you just look for, I think if you look for Star Trek New Voyages, Blood and Fire, you can find it. I think it's like an hour and a half or something like that. Wow. So check it out. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So, um, we only did one today because I knew that it would take a while for this discussion and all the comments and all that. Yeah. Well, listeners, let us know if you happen to watch it. I'm interested and I think I will watch it after this. After hearing all about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think I'll do that too. Uh, any, and that's pretty much what I had on this one. Uh, any other thoughts on this? I mean, it sounds like you probably would have been interested to see what it would have been like, right? Yeah, and I definitely would, especially now knowing that backstory of, you know, David Gerald and and what he was saying and what they were thinking and, you know, that amazing social commentary on donating blood and the AIDS epidemic and interesting the twist with the malaria and how that spreads and how he tied that into the blood worms. Very, very interesting. And the cool little uh, physics you know, I mean, it's, it's science fiction and they took a part, what was it called again? The wavicle? Wavicle, Wave yeah. Wave and particle, you know, yeah. and had that tied through in that through there. So we're getting our science and our techno babble. I'm sure they would have techno babbled yeah. the crap out of it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely would have wanted to have seen that with my TNG characters. Yeah. Other thought? Yeah. yeah. I definitely would have liked to have seen it. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I, th I think so. It's it's uh, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, did you have any final thoughts uh, on, on this story, Justin? Or did, did you I mean, I guess my only other final thoughts are, I mean, it was, I think it was great to talk about this. I've been looking forward to it because it's, it's uh, again, for those who know about a lot of the lost episodes, it's probably the one that's most well-known or, uh, and would have changed a lot of things probably more than some of the other ones that we've talked about. So I think it was great. And, uh, and to, to learn more about it and all its different like progressions <laughs> through time. So, yeah, yeah, I'm interested to see if our listeners knew anything about this. I can tell you one listener, Duncan Barrett actually asked me when we started this, are you going to do blood and fire? Cause oh, he really wanted to, okay. to hear about it. So oh, very good. This one's for you, Duncan. <laughs> But yeah, no, I know there are some out there that know about it. But I think for a lot of these lost episodes, because it's not something that was official or that aired, it there and is well known. Yeah. But and they will continue, believe me, there are more lost episodes. So a preview for next week uh, episode. Yay! Uh, I think Amy's <laughs> really looking forward to this one. No, she's not. 
this is the worst. No, I thought right? the last one was your worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Come on, you like it more than yeah. that movie that you won't name, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nemesis. Yeah. So, so Amy, favorite character moments for Nemesis. Be sure to narrow down your list oh, <laughs> so that no, it's only so three. Many. Plus on... I think we should like, like limit her like right now. We should say no Troy and no Riker. <gasps> what are you? Yeah, I don't think so. No, that's my number one. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, no. We we should limit her to none, but we'll limit you to one. You can only have one Troy Riker moment. Ooh. There you go. Boom. Yeah. There you go, and it could it could it could be your favorite Ooh, one. Ooh, only one. one. Okay, all right. Only one. All right. And you know what? I think we have a challenge that a listener put out there, Chris Trebusio. You said you had a really obscure pick that we're going to try to figure out what it is. Yeah, <laughs> so. he has been like tempting me because he posted on Twitter. He's like, "Well, I'm watching Nemesis, and I got to take notes." And I'm like, "Aha! You don't have it picked out." And he's like. No, but I'm going to find one. I was like, ooh, okay, bring it. Yeah, and I think there was also a suggestion that uh, we should include deleted scenes from Nemesis. That's right. Do that. That's right. <laughs> I might just do that and watch the different deleted scenes and see if I want to pick from that. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. So there you go. Okay, so listeners, one watch Troy Nemesis. Riker pick. We're tying your hand behind your back. <laughs> okay, but I do reserve the right that if, Richard, you don't have any honorable mentions, I get to take yours. Okay. You mean it'll be like, it'll be like last time where you, you give all of Richard's honorable mentions? I'll let her splurge. <laughs> well, I have, if I have to be limited on the Troy Riker scenes, then I should get some extras on the honorable mentions, so... Sure. We we will reserve like ten okay. minutes for all of your honorable mentions. How about that? <laughs> so so Justin, just pick three and I'll pick three and we're good. <laughs> I don't know I like, if Justin like can mentions. do that. He likes I love his honorable, honorable mentions. mentions. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it'll 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 be fun. You'll enjoy it more than the insurrection one, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it has been so much fun talking about the last episodes of TNG, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek.fm. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I just want to sing. After every time I hear the title of this book, I want to sing, A Time for War, A Time for Peace. <laughs> Funny, funny story. When when this was being pitched at the sales con in the sales meeting uh, at Simon and Schuster, somebody on the sales force was was worried that we that they'd have to get permission to use the titles because because it's a song by the birds and 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 John Ordover, the editor, had to gently point out that it was actually from the Bible and therefore kind of <laughs> melodic tricks. You know, I suppose as being an actor, you know, I just was really kind of feeling into Clive's character and and trying to express the emotion of what I felt like he was going through on the Sarangi. Mm -hmm. So then it became much more of a personal, individual character. It was how I experienced doing it. The 602 Club. But I look at this film as being almost three, maybe four different films. Because when we're in Krypton, Krypton, it's very sci-fi. Oh, you mean uh, Krypton. Yeah, you mean we, Krypton. We were on Krypton. I'm yeah. sorry, Marla. Okay. Krypton. Yes. 
<laughs> so when we're on Krypton, Krypton uh, it's very much a science fiction movie. Next thing, all of a sudden, we have Kal-El come to Earth, and now it feels very Norman Rockwell. I mean, it's almost like, I mean, totally different from what we just saw on Krypton or Krypton. To the journey! Brace for impact. Brace for impact, yes. <laughs> okay, if... Uh... I, I, I'm going to make a commitment to myself right now. If I am ever perishing in a plane crash, I am going to say brace for impact right before I die to everyone on the plane. I will brace somehow for impact. hear it across the miles. It'll be very dramatic, you know, with some dramatic theme music playing, hopefully, just like we have in Voyager here this episode. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. And it's been a while since we've had an iTunes review, so please, if you're listening to this, give us a review on iTunes. We'd very much appreciate it. I don't think anyone's actually uh, listening to this point because we didn't even get an email. Either. I know. <laughs> and we've been pretty funny at this closing part, listeners. I know. You but- know, we should do like bonus content like in between these paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Well, you know, the, it hasn't come out yet, but the next one, I think I had said that uh, people should respond with the hashtag still listening yes, if they're that's listening right. this far. So we'll that's find right, out on Tuesday right. if anybody's yeah. listening that far. They're not. <laughs> it's just us three. But that's a good idea. <laughs> Maybe we should do bonus content in between a paragraph, like five minutes or yes, something. Forget the Patreon episode uh, <laughs> thing. Let's just do that. <laughs> well, listeners, if you are still listening and you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab that little RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways you can do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation, the Babel Conference, our listeners uh, group on Facebook. Just type Babel, now B-A-B-E-L, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta move your head side to side, <laughs> into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. You know what? We're going to have a little bonus content here. Rich, Richard, your all-time favorite Worf moment. Tell us. My all-time favorite Ooh, Worf on the fly. Well, we gotta have this on show the fly. On the fly. On the fly. Uh, first thing just the first one that comes to your mind. Uh, when, he, when he takes the bat lift to uh, uh, oh, Duras. Ah, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. All right. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to send us an email about that or anything else, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. I do have one for you, uh, Amy. What is your what is your least favorite moment for Troy? Least favorite? Le- come on, you got to do least. a favorite moment for Worf. No, no, no. We know <laughs> the favorites. <laughs> least favorite. Gosh. Um, least favorite. Oh, I have one. Uh, In Hollow Pursuits, I do not like the goddess of empathy. That's not really a Troy moment, though. That's a Marina Sirtis acting moment. 
Maybe. Marina yeah, is fair. brilliant. I don't oh, okay. like that. Barclay. But it's not Troy. That's that's Barclay's well, impression of Troy. It's what his you... interpretation of Troy, and that <laughs> okay. I don't like. So, Richard, when you're not answering bonus content questions or fighting regular bloodworms, where can we find you online? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, when I'm not doing any of that, um, you guys can find my Facebook. Um, I pop in here and there on the Babel Conference. And my handle on Twitter is xransom. So, Amy, um, where can people contact you when we're not talking trash? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> where can people contact you when you're not thinking about Well, goals? I still am thinking about them, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can find me here on the network. I co-host The Edge with Patrick Devlin and do postcards from The Edge, and that's about Star Trek Discovery Season two is starting. Very excited. Finished up the short treks. So you can find me there. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. And I am coming up to the end of season five of my Deep Space Nine rewatch. Uh, but my favorite place is right there in the Babel Conference where I can see all of your comments. Justin, where can people contact you when you're not having nightmares about bloodworms? crawling in over the door. You know, and I've just gotten over the nightmares that I had when we were talking with Lee about aliens and the milk and cookies. (laughs) And that was uh, over a year ago. (laughs) So I'm going to be having nightmares for some time about blood worms. But when I'm not, which is my waking moments, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek, currently tweeting out my season seven rewatch of The Next Generation. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. And before I continue, guys, ask me a bonus question. I asked you guys. I asked you and Richard asked. Jamie's okay, turn. okay. It's Jamie's turn. Justin, <laughs> what is your favorite food that we see on screen? Favorite food that we see on screen? Mm-hmm. Are we just talking about TNG or anywhere in Star Trek? Um, TNG, please. Just TNG. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Favorite food that we see in TNG. You know what? I think Troy makes her chocolatey desserts look really good. That's what I'm going to go with. Awesome. Excellent. Chocolate sundae. Okay. Not not gawk. (laughs) By the way, like what's a Klingon dessert like? Do we ever see that? Blood wine. I don't know. I don't know if we do. Blood wine is their dessert? Okay. (laughs) Well, they're always drinking it. All right. Well, now that those of you who are still listening have heard our bonus content, if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. I'm going to see if this works. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current blood worms who oh. magically <laughs> turn into lovely butterflies and make Earl Grey what it is. Did it work? Did it work? It worked, yeah, it worked. Okay. I'll give you that. Our associate producers, they are Norman Lau, Justin Noser, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. 
So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. Things are only impossible until they're not. Today is a good day to die!